Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to another episode of the Drive Time Show here on the Voice of Islam. Today, with myself, Raza, over the next two hours, I'll be joining you on your drive home, in your homes, or wherever you are listening, Voice of Islam, too. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today. In the next two hours, we're going to speak about um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the United States of America as we are going through the Black History Month, not just in this country, but also in other countries around the world. So we thought, why not uh, explain a little bit more and give you a little bit more information about the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the United States, specifically the history of our African-American brothers who were some of the pioneer members and pioneers of that community, which is now more than 20,000 strong and uh, comprises of members from around the world, as I said, predominantly African-American and Southeast Asian countries. Now, despite this seemingly small number, they have a much, much longer history than many other Muslim sects in the United States, which you will find out as we go along and who have helped to lay the groundwork for missionary work and Islamic movements that would later arise in the country. From the annual 9-11 blood drives to countless donations, they continue to make their mark in the Islamic history of the United States. But, as we said, how exactly did Islam Ahmadiyya come to the United States? Over the next two hours, I would like you to and you know, request you to join us as we discuss the first African Americans to accept Ahmadiyya, to accept Islam Ahmadiyya, and how their acceptance came about. How do their numbers continue to grow, and what are their hopes for the future generation? of members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the United States. As always, give us a call 0208-687-7878 if you have any question, any comment, any concerns, anything that you would like to ask or contribute to the show. And as always, we're also asking you a question on our opinion poll on Instagram. So if you go to our Instagram story, um, the question today is, which city did Hazrat Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, may Allah be pleased with him, one of the companions of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, arrive in 1920? So, 1920, keep that in mind, the first missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community to the United States was Hazrat Mufti Muhammad Sadiq. But what exact, which city exactly did he come to? That is the question for today, and I'm sure... You will find out about the answer as we go along and if you keep listening. Let's go back, not just to the 1920s, but even further than that, 14 centuries ago. Islam is a religion for everyone and that has been made quite evident in the Holy Quran, the Holy Book of Muslims in chapter 49, verse 14, when God Almighty states, O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female. And we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes, that you may recognize one another. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is most righteous among you. Surely, Allah is all-knowing, all-aware. We can only talk about Islam by examining the early history, uh, the history of the time of our Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, Muhammad. What instances and examples do we have from him to show us that from its inception before the religion even had a name, it was meant to be for everyone, whether rich or poor, man or woman, young or old, black or white? 
So in that early history of Islam, the most famous example regarding our topic today would be of one of the early companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who was named Bilal, who was well known as the first Muslim chosen to be a muezzin, meaning someone who calls the adhan. This is the call for prayer. And his duty was to recite that azan, that call for prayer, five times a day at the mosque. The story of how that call for prayer came about, something that we've spoken about here on the Draft Time Show a few times. But just to recap, when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, or the Muslims migrated to Medina after the persecution in Mecca, they built the first mosque, which is now known as the Prophet, uh, the, the, the Mosque of the Prophet. If you look at the pictures today, if you've been to Medina, it's a beautiful, gorgeous, massive, large mosque with a green dome where the grave of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is also located. But that mosque had a very, very humble beginning. It was a mosque um, which was not made of concrete blocks. It didn't have marble floors. It didn't have that huge minaret or that uh, dome. It was a very humble mosque. The roof, when it was when it used to rain, would leak. Um, you would have water dripping from the roof. And that was where Islam started. This is where the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, would gather, would pray, in peace and security and where they would think about or reminisce sometimes about the days when they accepted Islam and also about the future, how the future of Islam looked like. So imagine a place in the middle of the desert, not developed at all, companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, gathering under that roof that, as I said, would sometimes leak when there was rain, heavy rain. And they are thinking about conquering and they are thinking about spreading to all corners of the world. If, you know, if I was a fly at the wall, what would I give to be that fly on the wall, first of all? But people don't really seem to imagine or seem to grasp what kind of revolution that religion caused in that society so speaking about Hazrat Bilal that was as I said the first mosque now the question came about how to call people for prayer as you know in the religion of Islam you have five daily prayers so one is early in the morning then you have one in the afternoon then in the late afternoon then late evening uh, early evening and then late evening so five daily prayers depending on the time of the year the time fluctuates but the question then arose, now we have the five daily prayers, how do we call people for these prayers? So the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he gathered his companions and he asked them for advice, as was the case with pretty much everything that uh, he would do. So he asked his companions, how should we go about doing that? Some people, they suggested we should light a fire. Some people suggested maybe we should have a bell or some sort of signal um, that we could uh, you know, strike or call out to make sure that people are aware that it is time for prayers. But none of these companion, uh, none of these suggestions that the companions gave, 
the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, liked. Because, you know, the fire worshippers, they have that fire. Uh, in the churches, you have the bells. Uh, or, you know, some even suggested, like, calling a, using a trumpet type of, uh, um, uh, you know, call to, to, to call people for prayers. But then you had one of the companions <clears throat> who said that I had a dream. And in that dream, I was told certain words. And he repeated those words, which uh, if you are aware of the call for prayer, we, we, you know, in the beginning of the show, we always play that first part, which says, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, meaning God is great, God is great, or God is the greatest. Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah. I, I proclaim, I testify to the fact that there is none worthy of worship except Allah, except God. Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. Meaning, I also testify to the fact that there is uh, that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is the messenger of God. Hayya ala salah, come to prayer. Hayya ala falah, come to success. And then Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, La ilaha illallah. Meaning God is the greatest, God is the greatest. There's none worthy of worship except Him. And that was very much liked by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him. The next question then that arose, who is going to call that azan, that, that, that call for prayer? Who is going to be given that duty, that honor to call people to the mosque. And in that moment, it was Hazrat Bilal, may Allah be pleased with him, who was one of the most loyal and trusted companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And he was chosen for that unique honor, for that task. Now, to just give you a, a brief background of Hazrat Bilal, he was born to an Arab father and, and, and an Abyssinian mother. Now, Abyssinia is now in modern-day Ethiopia in East Africa. And his complexion was said to have been dark brown. Both of his parents were slaves, and so he was born as a slave as well. And in Arabia, during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we know how disgustingly and how badly uh, these enslaved people were treated. If you think about the the role or, or the status of women in that society. They had you know, no status whatsoever. They were treated as personal property of men. But then even worse than that were the, was the treatment of slaves or the status of slaves. I mean, these were personal properties of people. They could do and, 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 and treat them you know, any way that they wanted. Rights? What are rights? Slaves don't have rights. So their master could sell them off. I mean, I'm sure we've all learned this in school, how slavery worked and what kind of horrible, horrible system that was. So that was his circumstances. When he accepted Islam and when um, that message got to him, he accepted that message of, of, of God Almighty. He accepted that message that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had to give in that, in that society. However, the problem arose when his, uh, his masters heard about him accepting Islam. They instantly campaigned for persecutions. And so if you read about early Islam and about the history of those early companions, it's heart-wrenching. Those 
atrocities committed against those early Muslims. And Hazrat Bilal, in specific, they would take him to the desert and place a stone, a heavy stone or a heavy rock on his naked chest and body. And the stone usually required more than one man to lift because it was generally heavy. And apart from that, it's in the middle of the desert. It gets brutally hot. So that stone was not just heavy. He would lie on burning sand and then that burning stone or that hot stone would be placed on his chest. He was also paraded around town with a rope around his neck when he refused to renounce Islam and embrace idol worship. Now, Hazrat Bilal's tongue did not mention anything other than his holy chant, Ahad, Ahad, which means God is one, God is one. So his torture continued for several days, but he remained patient, he remained brave, firm, and his trust in Allah was unwavering. When news of this torture reached the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he sent Hazrat Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him. So Abu Bakr was a very close friend of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, but he's also known as the first Caliph of Islam later on in the history of Islam after the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And he entrusted Hazrat Abu Bakr to buy the freedom of Hazrat Bilal. May Allah be pleased with them both. One very unique thing about uh, Hazrat Bilal was that people made fun of his Arabic accent even after being appointed to call the Azan. So once when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, saw the people of Medina laughing at the call for prayer, the Adhan of Hazrat Bilal, he turned to them and said, you laugh while Bilal called the, called the Azan, but God hears his Azan in the heavens and is pleased. What wonderful, what beautiful words to express his love to this companion of his. Another companion, Hazrat Anas, may Allah be, be pleased with him, narrates that the Messenger of Allah said, There are four people who have taken the lead in accepting Islam. I am the foremost believer among the Arabs. Salman is the foremost believer among the Persians. Bilal is the foremost believer from among the Abyssinians. And Suhaib is the foremost believer from among the Romans. Hazrat Bilal would live on to participate in, in many battles and historical events alongside the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Some accounts even mention that he served as the secretary and treasurer for the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Some, something that I'm sure even many Muslims were not aware of. So that is the brief history of the early companions of Islam, the early companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and the, and the atrocities that they had to endure, the torture that they had to go through. But we don't find any examples other than unwavering support, loyalty, love to God Almighty, to his Prophet, and to the mission that was assigned to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, by God Almighty. Moving on, or moving to um, times closer to ours right now, as we can tell from that story of Hazrat Bilal that I've just mentioned, Islam was a religion ready to welcome people from all walks of life. Just because the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, happened to be an Arab, it does not lay down any law or guidance about who can join the fold of Islam or who cannot. 
And it also does not mean that any race or ethnicity is superior to the other. One thing that I would like to mention here as well, uh, related to this point, is one of the sermons or the sermon of the Holy Prophet uh, of Islam, I mean, uh, the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon him, which is known as the farewell sermon, which he gave at the only pilgrimage or hajj which you know is a, is a is compulsory upon muslims once in their lifetime which the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah upon gave in his lifetime so as i said this was the only official full-fledged hajj or pilgrimage that he did and also the last one and in that <clears throat> when all the muslims were gathered he gave that sermon which encapsulates basically the teachings of islam encapsulates of what the message of Islam is for the world and also the responsibility of the Muslims on how they need to treat and how they need to deal with the people that live among them. And one part, very famous part, that I'm sure you've heard before as well, talks about this difference that people sometimes make today in um, uh, people from, dif- from, from, from a different background. So racism was uprooted by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in that sermon. Not just in that sermon, but that sermon was based on the teachings of Islam that he had received from God Almighty, which then later on became the Holy Quran over a period of 23 years. It was his treatment at that time of his companions, how he showed them love, how he showed them generosity, how he showed them compassion in every every aspect of, of his dealing with them. So in that sermon, it's a very beautiful, very wonderful line that, again, eliminates racism from the very get-go. In that, based on the verse of the Holy Quran that I mentioned before, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, says that an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab, nor a non-Arab over an Arab. They're both equal. They're both the same. A white has no superiority over a black or a non-white. And a black has no superiority over a white. The only thing that makes someone distinct, the only thing that makes someone special is the fact that you have righteousness. That is the only thing in the sight of God Almighty that makes you can make you again not just in the not in the sight of people but in the sight of God Almighty better than others. I can be from any background whatsoever. I can be rich as you can possibly imagine. I can be the most gorgeously good-looking person in the world. I can have all the titles bestowed to me by any government, by any institution, by anything in the world. But it would mean nothing and absolutely nothing if I, in the sight of God, am not righteous. That's all that matters. God decides, God does not look at your face. God Almighty does not look at your riches. He does not look at your titles, which family you belong to, which background you come. No, none of that matters. The only thing that God looks at is your heart. And that is also one of the narrations. So that is something that makes someone distinct from others. That is something that in the sight of God Almighty, 
will make you the beloved of God. Moving on, the year was 1885. And Hazrat Mizar Ghulam Ahmed, the promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, had sent a pamphlet to thousands of laymen and clergy in Europe and America. Through this pamphlet, Mr. Alexander Russell Webb, who was an American journalist, later accepted Islam and established seven Islamic branches. In 1920, some 45 years later, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizar Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, sent one of his followers, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, to become the first Muslim missionary to the United States of America in 1920. Upon arriving on February the 15th of that year, he was imprisoned. He had to write to the President of the United States of America, who responded and permitted Hazrat Mufti Muhammad Sadiq to preach Islam in the United States of America. Now, while in prison, he recognized the importance of reaching out to African Americans and introducing them to the Ahmadiyya interpretation of Islam. His tireless efforts to bridge cultures and promote understanding, as I said before, based on the teachings of Islam, that laid the foundation for a very unique chapter in American religious history. While in prison, he observed the racism faced by African Americans and with this knowledge in hand, he then preached Islam's universal um, teaching, his, the, the Islam's universal character of racial and gender equality to them. And because of this, at least 15 of his co-prisoners accepted Islam Ahmadiyat. In 1922, some two years later, he then established the headquarters of the first mosque of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Chicago, Illinois. So that, again, is the first uh, chapter or the first introduce, introductory remarks that then laid the foundation of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the United States. And what followed on from there is a story, is a history full of, of um, uh, you know, loyalty, full of devotion, full of faith-inspiring incidents that even today inspire the younger generation. And that is exactly the point of this program, to inspire the next generation, to show them and to explain to them the sacrifices that their forefathers, their, that their ancestors made, the, the difficulties that they had to go through in order to accept the Imam of the Age, the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mazahullah Ahmed, on whom be peace. Now, as I said, we would like to uh, hear from you. If you uh, want to ask a question, if you have any anything that you would like to know about the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in, 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 like in general, but also specifically about the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the United States. If you are listening to us from the United States, we'd love to hear from you and what you have to say about it, how your experience has been. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. Don't forget, we're also asking you a question on our opinion poll on Instagram. Which city did Hazrat Mufti Muhammad Sadiq arrive in 1920? Was it Philadelphia? Was it New York City? Was it Boston? 
or was it Washington? That is on Instagram. Go to Voice Islam UK and leave us a comment. Now, we are going to speak to a number of guests from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the United States because who better to talk to about their experience, about the experience of their ancestors and about their forefathers who were the early pioneers, the early um, uh, members of the community who accepted the message of Islam Ahmadiyya and, and also to speak about what, what were some of the difficulties and what were the, some of the, the, the hardships that they faced um, and uh, as I said, if you have someone in your family, if you have any instances that you would like to share, by all means, we'd love to hear from you. 0208-687-7878. Our first guest for today is Sister Regina Holson. She is currently serving as um, uh, Pan, the Pan-African Ahmadiyya Muslim Association Women President, uh, the Palma President for the Women's chapter. She accepted Islam Ahmadiyya in December 1993. She was driven to Islam after reading the English translation of the Holy Quran because it spoke to her as a continuation of what she learned as a Christian and she continues to learn even 30 years later. And uh, I mean, not just her, but I think that's the case with all of us here. And we're very delighted, very honored that Sister Regina has found some time to um, come on to the Draft Time Show and share her uh, experience of the last 30 years. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Draft Time Show and Jazakallah for joining us today. It's so great to have you. Um, when you were first introduced to Islam some 30 years ago, was it directly through um, you know, someone from the community? And if not, how, how did you learn of the community? I mean, we're talking about a country of you know, more than 200 million people. It's not that diff- right, it's not right. that easy to 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 come across someone from from the community at that time thirty years ago. Thirty years ago, right? Correct. Um, ironically, the way I started is, and of course, I'm dating myself. I was looking through the phone book, and of course, Amadia was the first one there. And you know, I to the then missionary in charge, you know, and he put me in uh, touch with one of the sisters, and we started meeting at a local McDonald's and she started talking and saying everything. And it was like, Oh, okay. It was still speaking to me yeah. with all that, with what I heard and all the different teachings. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what has your experience with the community been like 30 years on and, and how has that evolved over the years? I mean, you, when I think about 30 years ago, I, I, well, I was nine years old at that time. I didn't know about the community at all <laughs> myself. <laughs> but you've seen that progress of, of, of the Muslim community in, in the United States in specific, but also globally. I mean, at that time, it was uh, the fourth caliph of the Muslim community who had great love for for our brothers and sisters in America in general, but specifically for for the members of, of the African-American um, uh, you, you know, side. How how have you seen and how have you experienced that? Well, and of course, in the beginning, and and still to this day, I've always felt welcomed. I've always felt this um, sisterhood. Um, and you know, because everybody always like, because I always thought it was um, kind of funny because at the in the beginning, my first Ramadan was like. Two months hmm. after I signed, but oh wow! <laughs> and, how was that? How was that and experience? Everybody, 
I, it was kind of interesting because everybody's like, oh, wait till it gets, because it was in February. Okay. So it was like, oh, it's like just wait until, you know, it gets where it moves to where it's summertime because, you know, when it's February, it's not as long. So it's like, okay, this is not so bad. Yeah. But it, but I loved it where um, I think the first, one of the first iftars I went to, they were like, well, just so you know, you know, this is spicy. Do you like spicy? <laughs> I'm like, well, I love spicy. <laughs> but I loved it. It was like, well, just so you know, you know, this is all spicy. I'm like, that's fine because I love spicy food <laughs> and even to this day it, um, the sisters I've met then and even you know continue to meet it, it, it everything is evolved and feeling closer to them yeah what parallels sister Regina do you see between you know the experiences and the contributions of early black American converts to Islam Ahmadiyyat like those inspired by Mufti Muhammad Sadiq which I mentioned even when he was in prison, he was able to convert at least 15 of his co-prisoners. And the current state of of, uh, of the community in the United States, particularly the Pan-African community, and now you serving as the women president of the Palma Association there, you must have a lot more overview, a lot more contact, a lot more exposure to what the members are going through. Right. Because um, for me, I think the parallels you know, one of them happens to be uh, basically after learning the teachings, um, you're wanting to share them, share the information with others, uh, no matter who they are, where they're from. Um, they're basically showing they they um, during you know as they're teaching, they show their love to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and to the Prophet Messiah Alayhi Salam by practicing their their teachings. Yeah. And just showing this is, you know, this is the truth. And then um, also not just showing about Islam by what they say, but, but what their actions are also. Yeah. And, you know, that that's the biggest thing that I've seen over the years, and you know, that are definitely parallels. It's like, yes, they get to the teaching. It's like, okay, this is, you know, this is what I want. This is from my heart. Yeah. This is, you know, what's, what I believe is the truth. And I'm going to teach it to others. Yeah. And I'm going to show it not just with my words, but with my actions. Yeah. That, I think that that's probably the most important point. That it's not just, 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 you know, talk, empty talk. It's, it's about the actions that matter, isn't it? Correct. 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 So in your opinion, what are some of the unique challenges and opportunities faced by um, African and Black Americans? And, and how does how does the association address these? As I said, you've seen those challenges. I mean, uh, not just within the community as member of the community, but also geopolitically speaking, what, what America went through over the past 30 years, three decades, and, and how... Have you maybe found some of the solutions, or not just you personally, but also you know, the younger generation um, in, in, in addressing these? All right. um, for me, I believe the, the biggest challenges are just not knowing um, what our shared histories or experiences are. Until you talk to each other, you see it's like, okay, this is similar. It may not be in the same, you know, in the same country, but yeah the experiences and the histories are the same. 
you know, maybe little nuances here and there, but basically they're the same. Yeah. But when unless you talk to people, you don't know that. Yeah. And the opportunities is basically you get to learn more about about each other and the ability to share your different cultures depending on um, where you're originally from. Yeah. This one I've gotten, excuse me, is, um, for example, there's a group that does like a cooking once a month. And they share recipes and they will do cooking on Zoom. Hmm. Um, there's some recipes when they share, it's like, oh, in my country, this is known as this. Uh-huh. But in another country, the same dish basically is known as something. So you get to know what those those shared things are. It's yeah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, we are more alike than we know Indeed. or than we thought. And it's always good to come together over food, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. It always is. It's kind of like, ooh, I like this. Indeed, ooh, indeed. I like this. It's like, ooh, I want to try to make this. <laughs> now, lastly, I want to ask you, actually, no, I have one more after this. I would like to ask you to share any, you know, any personal stories or experiences from your role as the head of the association, of the Palma Association, that have left maybe a, you know, a significant impression on you and that may be beneficial for, for some of our listeners as well. Sure. Um, since I've only, um, I was only appointed a short time ago, but because I've been part of the, uh, the association for a while, um, what I've seen is basically sisters who are willing to help, whether or not they can take an official position, but they're like, hey, you know, I can't do this particular thing right now, but definitely if you need me for something, let me know. Mm. And that's what I found throughout with anything I've done in the community, whether or not it's part of Lajna or anything, or, you know, or part of this association, people are willing to help. Yeah. Even if they can't do anything in an official capacity, they are saying, hey, you know, if you need me for something, let me know. Mm. All right. Now, lastly, though, um, what would you, do you have any message for, for the next generation, because that's uh, one of the, you know, or you know, the reason why we did this program. What are your hopes? What are your expectations? Maybe even, what are your, 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 you know, your your advice maybe for the next or the future generation of of Ahmadis growing up in the United States. And also around the world, maybe because you know some of the challenges, as you mentioned, we we we, we share with each other. Exactly. We might be living in different countries and continents, but the challenges in the world that we live in today might be the same. Sister Regina, you still there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. yeah. It kind of went out a second. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, basically, my thing is, do what you believe. Whether or not you see people doing it or not doing it, you know, just stick with what you believe. Don't let anybody, you know, steer you in a different direction. Yeah. When you know the truth, stay with the truth. Indeed. Wonderful. Zakala, thank you very much for your time. It was an absolute honor to, to speak to you. Sister Regina Holson, currently serving as the Pan-African Amdia Muslim Association Women President in the United States. Uh, in the United States. Um, Jazakallah, thank you so much once again. Okay, Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum. 
There you have it. That was uh, Sister Regina Olsen sharing her experience uh, from the last 30 years or so. So, But if you want to have your say, if you want to share your experience, if you, if there's any message that you would like to give, then by all means do give us a call on 0208687878. In the 1930s, we are going to go to the Chicago chapter of the community. That Chicago chapter comprised... 98% of American converts, most of them African-American. And one of these converts included African-American convert Omar Khan, who was converted by uh, Sufi Muthiyar Rahman Bengali and then became the president of his chapter of the Ahmadi Muslim community in Chicago. You also had other notable converts, Brother Nuruddin, Nur Islam, the distinguished president of the Chicago community for 20 years, and uh, Hamida Khatun Chambers, who served the Chicago chapter tirelessly, that was just two uh, of the prominent early converts. Now they both became from came from very strict, strong Christian backgrounds, but ultimately became very you know zealous preachers of the community or of the Ahmadi Muslim community and the message of the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Nurul Islam, for example, was born in Georgia on the twenty second of August, nineteen o eight as Timothy Titus Smith. He was a son of Samuel Smith and was a middle child of 11 children. His family was quite well off before a fire burning down their property, which caused them to relocate to Chicago, Illinois, where he then heard about the Amdi Muslim community. He formally joined the community and the movement in 1932 or 1933, and shortly after he met his wife in 1934, who became an Ahmadi Muslim after he insisted that their marriage could not proceed if the condition had not been met. Again, look, this was um, not a forceful marriage or he didn't force her, but again, for, for people who give precedence to their faith, that means precedence to their faith over all worldly objects, even when it comes to your life partner. His own family did not take his conversion so well. His father, who was a minister, tried to dissuade him from his past, culminating in many uh, painful discussions. And eventually, one day, he told his father, If you promise to stand before God and answer for me on the day of judgment, I will leave Islam and return to a Baptist church. They responded, Boy, you know I can't do that. Which then, quite, you know... <laughs> simply ended that debate. That brother Nur Islam was, was very passionate about the belief. I personally have heard stories about him or you know people mentioning his name uh, when I used to go to America, uh, which should be no surprise given his evangelical background, to be honest. And he would do his best and had many different methods. For example, he would regularly give out leaflets. Uh, at other times, he would take certain routes when driving just, just to give people lifts so he could propagate Islam. Again, simpler times, simpler measures, simpler means. Another very devout member from that Chicago chapter was Hamida Khatun Chambers. Irene Smith was born on the 16th of April 1910 and was 12 years old when her family crossed the border of Albany, Georgia, heading west to Chicago. She was the daughter of a staunch Baptist minister, and like Brother Nur Islam, she too was raised in a very strict environment with regular attendance at church as a necessity. And this level of consciousness was ingrained 
from an early age. Her first introduction to the movement was through her brother, who had been a Muslim for 10 years. She attended the mission house for 30 consecutive nights during the holy month of Ramadan. She had heard the call to prayer in a movie many years earlier and felt that this had resonated upon her. By 1946, she was captivated and she signed the allegiance form and entered the community formally. She had numerous administrative offices in Chicago within the auxiliary, the women's organization, the auxiliary. She was the president of the Women's Association of that chapter from 1965 to 68. She was a steady and focused um, in her efforts for more than 50 years and held, you know, as I said, various offices so within the community. You have different offices that you're responsible for the younger members. You're responsible for, I don't know, the finances or the moral upbringing and whatnot. And then in 1986, she wrote to the then fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah have mercy on him, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, saying that she was sick and was a pensioner and could not afford to pay the you know the contributions to the community that uh, are used to build mosques and, and and finance all the different activities within the community. And the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have uh, mercy on his soul he then responded that I do not want you to stop paying this because I don't want you to stop receiving blessings what a wonderful answer and the caliph also wrote a letter to Sheikh Mubarak Ahmed who was also a missionary at that time uh, with the letter attached and he further wrote I am surprised such devout people have been neglected and then instituted a scheme where the community began to send her you know, money on a regular basis. So there are countless more where these stories come from of early pioneers of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the United States who um, may have been forgotten, uh, who may have, uh, or who may, who, who are, who maybe are not remembered in the way that they should. But as I said, we do this on a regular basis every year. We're trying to raise some awareness of the community in the United States. And as I said, the whole point is to give that inspiration to the next generation. The whole point is to raise awareness, to remember and to reminisce some of the these early pioneer, um, not just missionaries, but also early converts to the Ahmadi Muslim community who laid the foundation of the community that we see today. Today, where you see that members of that community are spread all over the United States with you know so many different chapters from the east to the west, from the north to the south, and all in the service of Islam, in the service of humanity, trying their utmost, trying their best to not just only preach what the message is, but also to practice. Not just talk, but also, you know, put all of these things into action as Sister Rajana mentioned in uh, her replies and responses. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. We're going to go to our next guest for today. Sister Hamida Carr is was with us on the line. She was born in, oh, I'm actually not going to even pronounce this, Waukegan, I probably assume that's right, Illinois in 1952. She is a seventh of eight children, and of which five have accepted Ahmadiyya in the 1960s, including herself, and she belongs to the Zion, Illinois community and chapter and is currently serving as the Pan-African Amdi Muslim Association Women Service to Humanity Office. And uh, what a wonderful 
um, opportunity it is for us to speak to Sister Hamida and ask her and learn from her and uh, you know question her a little bit about her experiences. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Sister Hamida. Assalamu alaikum. All right, I think this has been playing up for the past couple of you know days. I think yesterday we had the same issue, so I do apologize to our listeners. We're going to try to reconnect to Sister Hamida as soon as we possibly can. But in the meantime, don't forget we're asking you um, in the in in on our opinion poll on uh, Instagram. So basically. Uh, what or which city did uh, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, the first missionary, the first uh, imam of the Amdi Muslim community in the United States, where did he come to and what uh, city? There's four options to you and uh, I'm sure you will pick the right one. Um, I believe we have uh, Sister Jamila Hamid with us on the line. She was born in St. Louis, Missouri. She currently resides in Philadelphia and has a lot of first-hand knowledge about the history of the Ahmadi Muslim community from 1947 till present. Oh, I'm so excited to speak to her. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Sister Jamila. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu. Thank you so much, first of all, for, for joining us today. Um, your parents accepted the community, uh, Islam Ahmadi in the mid-1940s. If I can yes. ask you to share maybe one anecdote of, of their journey into the fold of, of, uh, of Islam, Ahmadiyyad. Well, uh, when my mother and father accepted Ahmadiyyad in 1947, you have to remember those that I have to put you at a place where we must, we must know exactly what African-American people were. Of course. And so I'm going to start there. There was that that was segregation at that particular time. My mother, you know, accepting Ahmadiyyad, accepting Islam, Ahmadiyyad, true Islam, was like having a new baby born. Hmm. And that baby has to take steps, and it has to go through all of the the whole part. Of developing so let's talk about my father how he accepted first and why our family came into Ahmadiyyad my father was a person who lived a mundane life and when I say that I mean he gambled Hmm. there was nothing for him to gamble my father my mother's wedding wedding ring and drink Hmm. so and one day in his life, there was a man named Ibrahim Khalil. I don't know how he met him, but he introduced him to this new baby, which was called Islam. And my father went to investigate. And it was not the Ahmadis then. It was the Sunni Muslims, hmm. whose this man's name was Mufti. And Mufti taught them absolutely nothing. So as time progressed, my father was, there was a missionary who came from Pakistan. He wasn't really a missionary. His name was Shuka Ilahi. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was a rug salesman at that time. And so he came 
and all the people who were introduced to Islam by uh, Brother Ibrahim Khalil were brought to Ahmadiyyat through him. And that's when my father started changing his life. He did not drink anymore. He did not eat pork anymore. In fact, my mother's mother, who lived with them, told my mother, you need to go down and see what my father's name at that time was Claude Green. You need to go and see what Claude is involved in. <laughs> so she was getting ready to make him breakfast, and her mother, who's Christian, said, no, you don't make pork for him, no bacon like that, and she didn't. So eventually she became interested in what this new baby was, and and she went down, and she, and she found out. And I'd be honest with you, my mother became a better Muslim than my father. <laughs> so it was the message. We were African Americans, not then. We were colored. We were called Negroes. We were called uh, everything other than who we really were. Yeah. So Islam gave us a purpose. Wow. And that purpose was for identity. Because Islam is a way of life. It is not just a, a spiritual development. It is a way of life for people who are searching and who had nothing. And they was doing the days of segregation. So now Muslims back there in those days, they didn't change their name. They kept their name, but they didn't change them legally. But what they did was take on a, a attribute of Allah yeah. or a name that had some meaning to what they identified for and their change in life. So my father's name was Usman Khalid, and my mother's name was Amina Khalid. And both traveled through this new world of Ahmadiyyat. And so all the family on my mother's side and my father's side didn't, didn't understand but they were certainly they certainly knew that a change came over them over both of them. Yeah. I was born in nineteen forty three. So uh when I went to Pakistan and we told the, the third caliph our story and so, someone says, Oh, they're not born in my sister and I are not born in Islam, I'm a dear and he says, Yes, they are. So I considered myself born in Islam. Awesome. So as my as as my father and mother didn't trained us and told taught us about Jesus didn't die on the cross, that was the first thing. And so my grandmothers who were born who were Protestants and Methodists, they objected to that. But my father held strong to that belief. Yeah. When my father was taught that we eat no more pork, our whole diet changed. There was no more Christmas trees in the home. There were no more Easter bunnies. <laughs> None of that. Our whole life changed. Islam was the new baby in Usman College's life oh, and family. So as I, as, as I grew up in, in, um, in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, mostly I 
you know, I, 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 there was a lot of things that were embedded in us, such as like I just described to you, mm-hmm. and we understood. But as as you grow up in Amadea, you just take on the name and everything that your father and mother taught you. Yeah. So it really doesn't really affect you because your journey is going to school now with other children, wanting to be accepted, wanting to go to parties, hmm. wanting to wear the clothes that they have available because you're in America. And, and uh, as I said, school was a big influence. So my mother was, was always, my mother, this is what I loved about my mother. My mother was flexible. See, in, in Islam, during those days, they took the middle path. Yes. And the middle path was not so stringent that you didn't want this religion. But, and when, when I say the middle path, I'm talking about, say, if I told my mother, I want to wear, wear those jeans that they have out, and they were tight. So my mother would say, then you go get your daddy's long white shirt <laughs> and put over you. And that's what we did. We put, so, and, and, and to t- tell you a little trick, if you wanted them more tight, you had to rub them in mud and, and then wash them while they were new. <laughs> so that's what I did. So my mother saw me in those jeans, and she, my father's long white shirt, you know, a dress shirt. I went in his closet, and I got that shirt, and I put it on. And that was the only way. And not only that, you know, the flexibility in Islam, yeah. you know, you, but you stuck to one thing. That we're Muslims and we're different, but my mother and father had wisdom because being born in America is different from being born in Pakistan, yeah, of course. In, in, in India, in Africa, you know. Yeah. So the flexibility had to be there in order for us to remain and to have the respect. So Wonderful. for the religion. Yeah. I I I I hate to interrupt you. I I'm so sorry, but we're going to go to the news. It's just twenty seconds, but I'm not going to call sister Jim. I'm calling. I'm going to call you Auntie Jamila because I mean that's that's the that's a that's a given. So Auntie Jamila, I would like to really request you to stay with us on the line, um, and uh, you know I want to sh- hear more 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 of your experiences. But we're gonna go to the five o'clock news, and then we'll be back after that. You're listening to the Draft Time Show today with myself, Raz. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Thank you very much for uh, joining us here on the Draft Time Show and welcome back to the Draft Time Show. We're speaking about the history of the Amdiya Muslim community, the early history of the Amdiya Muslim community in the United States uh, as we are going through the Black History Month here in the United Kingdom as well. So we wanted to focus on the history, on the struggles, on the challenges, and also on the experiences of our brothers and sisters, uh, African-American background in the United States. Joining us right now is um, El Jamila Hamid. Uh, Auntie Jamila Hamid, Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back. And Jazakallah, well, thank you so much for staying with us. 
Um, as I said before the break, I I I I could go on and listening uh, to you for 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 you know for the rest of the show maybe, but there's two things that you've mentioned which really stuck out and which I would like you to maybe um, elaborate a little bit more upon. One thing that you mentioned is that for for you, Islam is a way of life. It's 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 much more than just faith. It's a way of life. And the second one that you mentioned was about the flexibility or the middle path. Um, what were some of the, or do you have any challenges or any experiences in your uh, childhood, maybe, or in your life that helped you navigate? Some of these challenging situations or made a meaningful maybe difference in your life well yes i um first of all i, I let me just say that um we we take the religion of islam is our parents who make us either a muslim a jew or a christian so and for me my mother and father signed the buy it but this time as i grew as i got older and i went through high school and you have to live first. You have to, you, you, you can't just be, uh, there's no way that a person can be completely religious hmm. unless you go through every aspect of what can get you there. So when you, when you have something new, such as Ahmadiyya, a religion that, uh, has is a way of life you have to be able to take from it that's going to benefit you mm. so that's what i did as i grew up i hated wearing scarves on my head because it messed my hair up <laughs> i hated doing all of those things uh, uh uh going to the mosque on a on a sunday but my father he was the president of the jamaat mm. and he it wasn't all of that I feared. It was daddy. Hmm. So I had, I went to the mosque. My father was a strong man when it came to leadership in our home. And when he changed to Islam, then the whole family, such as my sister Aziza Ahmed and myself and my mother, we went to the mosque every single uh, Friday. And Sunday. Now that that was, we didn't have many books. We had a very few. We didn't have all five volumes uh, of the Holy Quran. We had the Life of Ahmed, alayhi salatu. We had the Life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. We had uh, very few books, prayer book, how to make salat, and all of those things. So, what we what we did. As at all of the people, there was a, a, it wasn't a storefront because we met everywhere just to keep the banners of Ahmadiyya alive. We, but it was, a, we were very poor people. We had one place that we went, it was on Delmore Avenue, and Shukrilahi was the missionary, and he was married to Bushra. That was his wife, and they had three children. So they lived in that place on Delmore. It was deplorable, really. Cold. Um, not very clean rats in it. So one of those rooms were where we met the few Ahmadis. I can name a few that met there at that particular time. And we sat around a big 
stove because it was freezing in there. Hmm. And they had to put wood in it, but it did not stop those members in those days who had to come distance to that little rat hole where Amadid was. So we sat around and we learned, we read, the women were involved too, the women were right there. There was no separation in Islam then. Separation really came, I'll tell you the truth, is when majority of the Pakistanis came and then they brought uh, the separation and a, a wealth of other knowledge. So as, we, as we're going through the African-American part of this, we have to realize that it was not an easy thing hmm. because we had Christian family, and we had dinners at Christian families' houses, and they, they, all of the things that they did, we didn't do anymore because we were, we were um, changed people. Hmm. They didn't want to call my father Usman, so they all called him Claude Green. They called him Claude. But did that stop my father? You know, my father told my, my grandmother what his name was. and uh, But she says, but I named you Claude. So so as we approached into this little little room that was, that was cold, and we made prayers, and we uh, had, we shared, we had dinners and everything. And there was one brother who lived across in the, in the one room of it. His name was Brother Ali, and he and his wife, Sister Ali, and he was, he cleaned up all the time. So, and he would call the Zan. Every time, 4th of July, when people were shooting guns, he would get on top of the building, <laughs> and he would call the Zan. Mm. He had the most beautiful voice, and it was strong and powerful, and it, it, People would listen, but they would say people were shooting guns, but he got up and called the Azan. That's how strong those Muslims were back yeah, there in those yeah. days. You know, they didn't, they, they didn't let anything deter them. And they would go preaching. When my, all of them would go downtown in St. Louis, Missouri, a bunch of African-American men, and they would go and pass out literature, because this is the most famous piece of literature. Jesus did not die on the cross. Yeah. The promised Messiah has come. And people would take the literature and throw it away. Some of them would be, some of our brothers would be spit on. Hmm. And some of them would be thrown rocks at. But that did not deter them. But where were the women? The women were at that place that I just described to you, making sandwiches and hot soup when they come back. And that's how the women supported the men. And but that did that so I this is what I grew up in. During Eid days, everybody that was there, not a lot, we had Eids together. We put the tablecloths out. We ate my father would sacrifice in the basement of that place. And I would take the as a child, I would take the lamb feet hmm. and chase all the children with it. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you know, that was what Islam Ahmadiyya was back there in those days. We were a family. Yeah. We had a new baby that we all nurtured, nurtured and we all lived by. And, and, and we were just so happy to have this new baby yeah. in our lives. And you, you did know, it together. You did it together, isn't we it? We did it together. Yeah. Everybody together. Yeah. 
You know, that's the thing. So on that, and, if if you allow I'm me, I, I I do apologize. If you allow me, I, I I would also like to. So two things that I want to ask. One is that that strength of, for example, your father to go out to do uh, that leafleting, to accept that people spit or throw rocks. And and then not just stop there, but maybe next week do the same thing. And maybe, you know, this happened, I'm sure it happened many, many times to him and and the early uh, brothers who used to go. Where where did that, you know, that, that strength to go and not just, you know, be afraid of what is ha- what will happen to them, or be ashamed. Maybe even where did that strength come from? Why would well, they? Why would they think, go about doing that every single time? Well, like I told you, you have to realize where they came from, where we came from mm-hmm. at that time. Segregation. You couldn't use the far, the the the, the, the uh, white water fountain. Mm-hmm. You couldn't go into the bathrooms. Uh, they had colored and white. So, you know, it, the strength came from being, I think, segregation, hmm. you know, where you uh, uh, you go instead of the fountain, you'd be cursed out. People don't want to serve you. They spit in your food. So as African-American people, and like I said, when you got that new baby, they nourished that. Yeah. They weren't going to let anybody kill that baby. Hmm. So they protected it. So... Ahmadid gave something to them, and they gave something okay. back to Ahmadid. Wonderful, wonderful. And it was the strength was uh, not no fear. The strength was to get that message out that what they believed, they sincerely believed that Jesus did not die on the cross. Yeah. The Messiah has come, yeah. and. It was through their readings. It was through the knowledge that they shared amongst each other. It was the dedication. It was it was something new to them yeah. that made their eyes open up. Now, one thing that it I'm was, interested in uh, as well, you said you were born in 1943, and uh, you have been alive to in the, in the time of three three caliphs of the Promised Messiah. So the second, the third, uh, actually, no, actually, more than that, five. Five. Uh, My four, husband always four. brought back me. Five. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, that is amazing. Yeah. So on that note, have like, what is it that you can share? I mean, that's something that is probably the glue that holds the community together, not just on a national, but on an international level. It doesn't matter which country you belong to. That relationship that every Ahmadi has with, with with the caliph of the time is is quite unique. And also, I mean, at that time, I'm sure it was more through letters, more through other means. But then, when 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 did you actually have you met? Have you seen um, a, a caliph in person? When was I'm that? glad you asked that. <laughs> My mother, all oh, and father always had this little picture because that's the only thing we went by. We always never saw the Khalifa back in the 40s. A little picture of the Khalifa standing in his turban, his his uh, it was in black and white, his cane. This is the second Khalifa and we always wrote to his wife who was Mary Muhammad Sadiq. Uh, we called her Chodiapa at that time in yeah. Urdu. So uh, 
that my mother always wrote and asked, requested prayers for, for the Khalifa. Now, my mother believed that the Khalifa, and my, uh, all of them believed that the prayers of the Khalifa was very, very strong and important. So they wrote to him, although they'd never seen him, all those, all those Muslims back there in those days. Yeah. So uh, when I had the opportunity to go to Rabwa, back in 1975 and saw the third Khalifa. I had heard so many things about this Khalifa. People had went to visit Rabwa, all the African-Americans, they were coming back, and they were, you would think that they had went to, and they went to Kadian, to think that they had went to Hajj. But, you know, that's a different thing. Yeah. But seeing the Khalifa, they came back with, with all oh, the, the the light hmm. that came from him. I was not a believer like that. Hmm. I was a late bloomer. In fact, in fact, there are a lot of people like me who are late bloomers. And so I would sit and listen to them, and I would say, mm-hmm. and that was it. Well, when I went, and, and when I went to Rabwa, and we were all had on our, our niqabs and our veil and everything and uh, my uh, sister would tell me you're supposed to work, put your, your cover your face with your niqab uh, I said why would I cover my face over here and not cover it in America mm. I said so I'm not doing that they said that's just respect for the Khalifa so I started covering my face I hadn't seen the Khalifa yet so I'm sitting in a round circle on the floor like all of everybody else and there's a chair that's in front of us. And from behind this, from behind this uh, green curtain comes this man. His beard was as white as snow. His turban was white. His whole, all his, 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 his the coat that he wore was beige. And he walked in, and Ola is my witness when I tell you this. There was a green halo over his head. And I looked at him. Nobody had what everybody saw said I saw. And that's when I began to feel that this is a holy man. So and so I had to ask the question because well, I don't know whether you want to get into this particular thing, but I had to ask the question. But yeah, it was an embarrassment. We're, we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna request for a separate show with you, just just me and you. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, oh, I'm ah, my goodness, they they should have given me more time for this. Anyways, I need to move on, but I have one last question, which I think is is one of the reasons why we're why, why we're doing this show. What would you say? To the younger generation about your experiences with within the community, the lessons that you've learned from your involvement, the a message of hope because you know this that the world has changed so much in the last sixty, seventy, even in the last forget about sixty, seventy, last twenty years, the world has changed completely, and some of the challenges that our younger generations are facing, the 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 answers that they're looking for. Do they find that in Islam? Will they find those well, answers in in the community? And how 
how can they emulate those examples of those early um, members of the community like your father like your like your mother well you know like you said we're living in times faith faith does not mean trusting Allah to stop the storm but trusting him to strengthen us as we walk through the storm beautiful so you know you have to have trust in Allah. Spirituality is not something that 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 grows on you. It's a long process. I didn't learn that until actually after I got married and started reading for myself. You you know they say you can take a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah. So these young people today are influenced with things that I have never been influenced by. Hmm. I am scared to go out my door sometimes. Hmm. And, it, you know, they're living in some trying situations. So I say to them, read. Read and understand why you are an Ahmadi Muslim. Go make a room just for yourself. And in that room, you have your prayer rug. You have, if you have to sit, if you have to lay, whatever, and take everything to Allah. Allah will change the heart when you cry to him. Hmm. But if you want shaitan to leave, leave you, and you want to be influenced by shaitan, and not be on Adina, Saratal, and Mustafim, then that's what you're going to get. But if you take it to the direction that your the seeds that your mother and father has planted for you, very deep, some of them are buried. And if your and, and if you retaliate against these, all of what your parents have taught you, you you're going to a shit time. Yeah. So you must hold on to the rope of Allah Beautiful. and believe. That Allah answer those prayers hmm. and cry to Him. He changes the hearts and 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 gives you dreams and make you understand. I am closer to you than your jugger vein. Only if you call on me. Auntie Jamila, thank you so much for your time. Um, and uh, for the third time, I hate I hate to 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 end it here. But I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that wisdom, that knowledge, that experience with us. And that message at the end, I think this this is what, what, what encapsulates it all, to have that faith in trying times and you know to, to pray to God Almighty to make us stronger because, as you said, that storm is not going to stop. It's just about how we manage, how we maneuver that ship that we're on to go through that storm. Jazakallah, thank you so much. I, I certainly appreciate you having me on the show and may Allah continue to bless your show. Ameen. And lead people to the right direction, Ameen. inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Alright, seven years, I think this was probably one of the greatest interviews that I have 
had the opportunity to do. So thank you very much to Sister Jamila Hamid from the Philadelphia chapter in the United States. Without further ado, we've been making our next guest wait <laughs> quite a lot. Sister Hamida Khar is with us on the line. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and so are we. I mean, uh, it's been one and a half hours, one hour and 23 minutes. I don't know where the time has gone. But as I said, I could sit here for the next three hours and keep listening to the guests that we've had on. So, Sister Amida, it's an honor for us to have you on. Jazakallah for joining us today. I've introduced you kind of before, um, but we had the wrong guest on. So I'll do that again. You were born in... And here you're going to have to help me. Waukegan? Waukegan, that's correct. Waukegan, Illinois. Waukegan, Illinois, in USA. In 1952, you're the seventh of eight children, of which five have accepted the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the 1960s, including yourself. And currently you belong to the Zion, Illinois chapter, and you're serving as the Pan-African Ahmadiyya Muslim Association Women's Service to Humanity Office. With that, Jazakallah, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Alhamdulillah, I'm so, so wonderfully honored to be um, asked to be a guest on your show. And um, I'm hoping that I can, Allah will give me uh, the words to articulate my feelings. I've written down some things, but I'm planning to be brief. I of course. That. No, no, don't, don't be brief. We got, we, got, we got time. Don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> okay. I want to ask and start off by asking you to tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and your early family life. What were some of your fondest memories within the community? I mean, seven out of eight children, five accepted. In the 1960s, we just spoke to Sister Jamila and she mentioned about, you know, the the world being different, not just America, the world being completely different. So for us sitting here in 2023, it's, you know, what what can you tell us? Yes, we are. We have made an incredible journey, uh, and me being born uh, in '52, that I was I was 17 when my oldest brother, well, not my fourth oldest brother, uh, Abdul Hakim, accepted Islam. He was our first family member to accept Islam, and this subsequently there was myself, my older sister Aliyah Rashid, who has re- resided in London in the past, and um, she's been well known all over the world. Um, and then also I have another brother, uh, uh, Hassan Hakim. Also, we were all born in Waukegan. And then I have my uh, other brother who's just above me in birth, and his name is Nasir Hakim. Mm. And so we were all born with Christian names, of course. And uh, the, 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 um, the, the journey for uh, people that are converts, that have grown up, in a Christian environment, in an environment as, as urban and as African-American citizens of the United States, it comes with a whole bag of uh, mm. challenges, heart, heart-wrenching, and also very, very wonderful things that, that have happened since I became Muslim. Um, I was 17 at the time, an adolescent, during the time when, we, when we, the United States was pretty much in turmoil with regard to the civil rights movement, the Vietnam era, era of war, and also just a lot of things changing in the social climate as well as the economic climate of the United States. And so that con- within that context, uh, 
we were growing up uh, poor and black, and also we were, we didn't know that why we were chosen by uh, the Ahmadiyya community. We had we had met a missionary. Uh, his name was Shukalai Hussein, and the missionary gave us our names, our our Muslim names. He named me Hamida, hmm. which means praiseworthy, of course, in Arabic. And I love that name. And also my other brother, Abdul Hakim. Our last name was Hakim. Hmm. Abdul was uh, a first con- convert. And so he was like three or four years older than I am. I think about four or five years older than me. And uh, he's a haji. And he was he's now deceased. He died in 2013. But also... He didn't. He grew up with being sort of like a, almost like we what we call a, a thug or a hoodlum, mm. <laughs> and so um, there was a lot of challenges for for young black men. Very very, you know, very powerful challenges, yeah, yeah. and uh, and so you know the the the, the uh, social climate was dangerous for African American youth. We were all um, born in that community. And that community is right outside, we're 36 miles from Chicago, Illinois. And so we know that um, we, our mother, as as as, as uh, converts, you know, our, my mother and father were not Muslim. They were they were not. They were kind of like peripheral to the Christian community. My mother, as a child, was very very um, very very curious about this whole Christian thing. So. She really wasn't really wildly invested in Christianity or the church, but we somehow were kind of had some sort of ties to the Baptist church. Hmm. And so, as you know, a lot of African-Americans are still very, very close and tied to Christianity in that way. And uh, it's really a peculiar thing, so I can go into that later. But my mother and father were really, really kind of shocked that we were changing they, um, my mother uh, was always, she was friendly, but she was distant when we were introduced by um, Brother Ali Raza and his wife Nasser Raza to our community. They were African Americans, but they also introduced us to Ahmadiyya Islam. And Alhamdulillah, for them, they are now deceased. Mm-hmm. From Allah, we come to Allah, we return. Um, my mom was friendly, but she was distant and a little guarded. She would also be, be kind of resentful of the changes that she was seeing. Hmm. Uh, Abdul was a thug, but in, in kind of like mischievous and really didn't want to cooperate with the rules, <laughs> hmm. and uh, which is typical for adolescents. But she would get she would get angry when he was he would um, make woozoo and get water on the bathroom floor. And so she would be, <laughs> she would complain about that. And that's what we joke about all the time. Our, our little conversion stories. And some of them are kind of heartwarming and funny, but she would get mad. Why are you spilling water all over the floor? What are you doing? What's this weird stuff you're doing? And then sometimes she would be very, very um, unhappy and resentful when we took on Arabic names. Yeah. And so she would say things like, well, whoever doesn't have the name I gave them when I, when I, when they were born, when I die, you won't inherit anything. Mm. So she was very, very <laughs> clearly angry and yeah. clearly uh, <clears throat> shocked and disappointed and 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 and, and kind of frightened. I, I, now that I look upon it, 
I know that my mother and my father were both shocked and curious, but also a little bit scared. Mm-hmm. What, why are my children um, doing these strange postures and rituals five times a day? What, what's that about? And so she would talk about um, asking questions. They were curious also, but also a little afraid. So I I reasoned as an adult that she must have felt sad and rejected and that my dad was kind of quiet. His nature was very quiet. But she she felt rejected that her children's souls were changing. But on the other hand, she noticed that Abdul's thug behavior had begun to produce more of a quiet, subdued demeanor. Hmm. And he was responding to a different structure uh, in life. We didn't have a whole lot of structure in our home, but we did have love, and um, and we were provided for. We were struggling because we were poor, but uh, but he was more open to socializing in a nice way. I'm sure he still faced that as growing up as an African American Ahmadi Muslim. But as 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 he as my mother started aging and understand and understanding more and started seeing the positive changes in her children, she gradually accepted us as embracing a new religion. My father was pretty calm about it all all along, but he was also sometimes ask us questions about, well, why is it that you all don't eat pork? What What's wrong with the food that your mother makes for you? And so we would have to explain, well, Mom, the religion says that we should not take, take in ingest pork anything that's related to uh, pork products. And so she gradually started making us separate food, cooking in separate vessels, and which was must have been a huge challenge and mm-hmm. change for her. And so I, I uh, hats off to mother, my mother and father in paradise. They were saying salam, salam alaikum to us. Mm-hmm. They never fully embraced Islam as we know it, but they, they had an open openness. Yeah. That they had developed just by their through their love for us and their care and concern. So, alhamdulillah, I'm oh, grateful God. for that. With growing up, Sister Amina, I and asked. So, oh, please continue. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I I asked um, this the same question to to our previous guest uh, uh, as well, um, Auntie Jamila. That. <laughs> You know, from 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 that time, there was a lot of challenges that you you went through. You've seen the change in the world, the geopolitical changes. You've seen the change and the growth within the community. You saw uh, new people come in. You saw, you know, those children, you, you yourself, from the age of 17, grow up and learn more things, see more, observe more things. Um. But one common thread that we see in the, in the experience of every Amity around the world, every single one of them, is their bond, is their relationship, is their guidance, is their um, connection with 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 the Caliph um, of of the time. Now, again, you as well, you've had the opportunity, uh, blessed enough to go through and see. That three uh, of the caliphs of the Amdi um, Muslim community, actually, no, uh, you, you four maybe, yeah, see? yeah, four. <laughs> yes. Um. So, how has that been? That journey throughout? I asked her also, when was the first time you met one of them or you saw one of them, and 
what 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 did that make you feel? How did that make you feel like? Wow, it, that's a that's a really loaded question, <laughs> and it's also sometimes I don't even have the words to describe the feeling that I had when I met uh, the third Khalifa oh, wow. for the first time, and uh, I was just uh, I was just awest, just in awe of the power and the energy and the spiritual energy that you can immediately feel mm-hmm. in their presence. And it's almost it's almost overwhelming. And so you know, even when we when I was able to have a Malakat with Hazur Masrur, uh the fifth Khalifa, uh you just become overwhelmed and you almost come to tears. I mean I'm yeah. kind of like emotional anyway. But you can feel the energy and you can feel the love. That it, that you that you that you know that comes with uh, Islam and and, and and understanding that this person is a representative of Almighty God mm-hmm. and that that they are they're coming to you with with an energy and a passion that kind of embraces you and and you feel the warmth and you feel the kindness mm-hmm. that Islam teaches and and the absolute justice this is what I've been really wanting to promote in my life but it didn't come easy it it came as in spurts as a challenge and also it was um filled with so much different kind of things that that are so distracting to those of us that are that are uh, embracing Islam or that are Hmm. and that are learning how to live as a Muslim it changes it creates a lens a spiritual lens that encompasses your thoughts, your ideas, and challenges, uh, behaviors, hmm. and, and habits. And so it's a, it's a period of development. It's almost like you feel like you're being reborn in a sense. Hmm. You know? And it's I certainly don't profess to be a perfect Muslim, but I know it's given as a goal for us as Muslims to be as close to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as in his ways and his challenges. Yeah. And also to understand what he went through with his own people, with the Meccans, as he discovered uh, the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're trying to emulate in in our in our most what primitive ways that we can yeah. that we can do. We we can do the best that we can, and that's all all I want for us is mm-hmm. to do the best that we can and to strive for spiritual. Strive for spiritual growth and connection. So I, I think that's what has changed my life in so many ways, and I'm still faced with a lot of challenges as I'm aging. But I also know that Allah is always there. He's all merciful. Hmm. He's all gracious. Absolutely. And Azur has been able to. Our our tradition of Khalafat has endure, helps us to strengthen and endure our, our resolve to be the best that we can. Hmm. And so that's why I feel like uh, my life would have been much different if I had, had not accepted Islam. Wonderful. Um, and now... I, I think that, yeah, it would you, have been very much more difficult. Yeah. And now you're currently in, in Zion where that historic duel with John, Alexander Dewey took place. We've seen yes. the footage. Um, every you know, member of the MDM security around the world, when His Holiness went there, the new mosque that was recently inaugurated. Um, how how was that experience? I mean, what what are your feelings about that? Well, I'm still processing my feelings about that. It was just so overwhelmingly wonderful. 
and we got the chance to see Hazor come to Zion for the second time. Hmm. He came in 2012, I believe, and we were able to feel his his power and his warmth and his energy and his just his spirituality. And also, he came to visit to inaugurate the mosque, which is called the Fafi Azim Mosque. Yeah. And it, we've had planning. We had been planning for this mosque, uh, the Ahmadiyya community in Zion and all over the world. We've been raising. We had a mosque fund when my uh, when my brother Hassan Hakim was the imam for the Zion Mosque at that time. Mm. They had a mosque fund, and it was developed, and also with the, with the, with the vision that uh, you know that MM Ahmed. And those people that were the, the missionaries at the time, they had a vision that we would have a mosque in the name, in the area that was developed by John Alexander Dowie. And we know that he, that during the, the era of the promised Messiah, alayhi salam, that the promised Messiah had challenged Alexander Dowie, who said that we were gonna, he was going to eradicate all the Muslims, all the Mohammedans, as he called us hmm. at that time. And and then he's going to eradicate, and they would have no power. And so, the Promised Messiah, as I am told and I have learned and read, he he challenged John Alexander Dowie to a prayer duel, a pure spiritual uh, effort. He challenged him to a prayer duel, and that challenge ended with John Alexander Dowie uh, losing his followers. He lost a lot of money, and he also had a lot of misfortune that be, that befall that happened with him. And uh, the, as you can see today, as evidenced by the the new mosque hmm. that Zion has uh, that Zion has has triumphed, and that the the Ahmadiyya community has triumphed in this area. So it continues to it continues to support. Yeah. This vision that these people, the earlier uh, Ahmadis, had had, um, had had talked about with regard to yeah. the process of uh, and and you are you are living there. You're the living proof of that truthfulness of of the promised Messiah on whom be peace, isn't it? Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. And I also my uh, children. You know, we raised money. We saved. I saved up a little bit of money, but I didn't have. I was. I'm not wealthy by any means, but we. I was able to. This the spirit of sacrifice, being able to, to um, just kind of participate and join in mm. and and add to this this wonderful prophecy that has happened yeah. here in Zion, Illinois. I'm very grateful, and I'm very, um, very, very, just privileged to be able to live in a community just a few blocks away Wonderful. where there's a brand new mosque and uh, inshallah they will build they will build the, the white minaret that was promised <laughs> inshallah sister Rita, my <laughs> inshallah, last inshallah we'll get that. <laughs> i'm sorry my last question to you unfortunately for today is from your personal experiences anything any one incident i mean this, this is a difficult question i know if i was to be asked the same question i i, I wouldn't know where to start but one incident one inspiring story that still resonates with you today which can be which you would like the you know the next generation those growing up in those very troublesome times in the world in any part of the world for that matter not just specifically america maybe 
that you think you can share with us um which 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 as i said resonates with you even today and which has some advice any guidance for for the next generation of maybe hope and 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 a brighter future oh wow okay um first of all i know that i have i have um four adult children uh, four adult amity children oh, some are active and some are not so active, but they still have hold, have been able to hold on to the rope of Islam. And I think that is going to be continue to be our salvation. And also just to kind of be patient, uh, you know, sober. Yeah. We have to have develop our patience because the world is very, very different, as uh, Sister um, Jamila had talked about earlier. And she said, you know, just offer, just try and offer your prayers. Just try to offer some some allegiance and remembrance of Allah, and that will all automatically create a whole new, uh, you know, just trajectory of 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 uh, of, of um, experience. Yeah. Your experience, you will not triumph without being able to at least acknowledge and declare, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad oh, Rasulullah. Wonderful. That is one of the. If we just just as just try, do it in pieces. We know that sometimes our our young people sometimes they're impatient and they hmm. and they also don't have the full understanding because their brains are not fully developed at a certain age, and they have to we have to be able to help them understand that they have a depth of understanding of Islam, and and we know that Allah is most merciful and most gracious, and that He's able. To understand our thoughts even before we think them, yeah. <clears throat> and He's everywhere. Wonderful. And if you reach out to Him, of course, He's going to reach out to you tenfold. Tenfold. So I tell them, even if you're having a difficult time, we live in such a crazy, tumultuous time in the world. You know, our heart bleeds for what's happening in, 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 uh, in the Ukraine. What's happening? In Palestine, and all those things have been prophesied. Yeah. You know, there's been prophecy around those things. So it's there's a there's a lens that we are able to 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 uh, absorb a lens, a spiritual lens that we can to use to create and insulate and ask Allah to protect us, Al Muhammad, yeah. the protector. Beautiful. So that's why uh, our children, as they were, they're developing and growing. I'm so happy that my grandchildren are Wakfana. That has a lot of tremendous meaning. You know, when I was 17, 18, I didn't know anything about Wakfana. <laughs> I didn't have the developed interest or the uh, the insight. Yeah. You know, my children, my grandchildren know more Arabic than I do. <laughs> They're just wonderful. I mean, that's that wonderful cultural expression yeah, for people who are African American when learning a new language, a new lifestyle. And those things take time. Of it takes time to develop those things. Beautiful. So as parents, we have to be able to have sober patience. Indeed. And know that Allah is always with us. Sister Amida, from the bottom of my heart, I would like to say to Zakira, thank you so much for your time and for, for sharing you. those wonderful experiences and your wisdom with with myself uh, as well as with our listeners from around the world. Thank you so much once again. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum. Alhamdulillah. Assalamu alaikum.
0208-687-7878. And with that, without any further ado, I'm going to go to our next guest for today. Unfortunately, our last guest for today, Dr. Brasir Rodney, who is currently serving as the president for the Pan-African Amdia Muslim Association in the United States. Dr. Rodney, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to the Draft Time Show and jazakallah for your time. Glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. Great to have you on. Now, there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders because after three Lajna members, after three sisters, you're the first man of the show. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> They've done. Oh, my goodness. I'm telling you, I was just talking to my production team as well. I'm, I am loving every single moment of the show and I could just keep going on. Dr. Rodney, thank you so much, first of all, for your time. I want to ask you, as the president of the Pan-African Amity Muslim Association, what are some of the key messages or values that um, the association seeks to convey to both African and non-African members of of the community at large? Well, Alhamdulillah, you you know, um, the association is is inspired uh, by the, the the message of Islam and the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, we are uh, under Nizam of Khilafat, so obviously that means that. Our charge is set for us by Hazrat Khalifatul Masih Al-Khamis. And to that end, you know, our primary mission is to, is to bring a sense of unity uh, to members of the African-American community, the African community, and diasporic African communities uh, within this fold of Islam and under Islamic Khilafat. I think that's, that's a, and that in and of itself is a tall order, but mm. that sense of unity is really important, right? Because... As African people, we come from different cultural groups and different la- linguistic language groups, different historical groups. And so it makes sense that that in and of itself charge, but it is possible, right, in, 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 in Khilafat. And, and it's actualized hmm. uh, in the Pan-African Ahmadiyya Muslim Association. You know, our, our association in the United States is over 1,500 strong, and we have members that span the entire African diaspora, both on the continent, Mm. Um, and uh, around the world. And so when people see us, they're really impressed by the fact that we have this sense of unity, mm. right? And I think more than anything else, that's what we want to share, this this whole idea of we are a united group of African peoples uh, within this very divine-inspired community. Wonderful. Now, I've spoken to Sister Hamida Carr. We spoke to Sister Jamila as well. And um, they, they, again, they had some unique some very faith inspiring stories about how their parents accepted Islam Ahmadiyyat how they got to know what sacrifices they made Dr. Rani if I can ask you to do you have any story of maybe one of the pioneers in the history of, 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 of the community in the United States that you would like everyone to know about Oh well, you know there there's so many. Um, I happen to be in St. Louis now, and 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 I would be remiss if I didn't speak of the the pioneers that that I had the the blessing of meeting. Um, uh, those that you know some have now passed away, but uh, you know here in St. Louis, I got to spend a little bit of time with our dear brother uh, Munir Ahmed, who was the president of the Jamaat for many years, uh, and it was interesting because I'd met Brother Munir. Um, he's actually. Uh, Sister Hamida's, Hamida's, Hamida uh, Qaddafi's father, a different Hamida. Mm-hmm. But I remember speaking to him years ago, before I moved to St. Louis, and I met him at Ashura. It was a meeting of our Jamaat, and 
I, I was really enamored because, you know, these are historic Ahmadis. They've, you know, he's a Jamaat member for over 50 years. Mm. And so I, I remember sitting with him and talking to him and he said, you know, you should come to St. Louis and work in St. Louis. And I said, what do you, what do you mean come to St. Louis and work in St. Louis? He's like, yeah, you should, you should come and spend some time there. Um, and it was interesting that when I, in fact, moved here and got a chance to spend time with him, you know, he was, number one, so humble. You know, somebody who had been a part of this community for so many years, but yeah. a very humble, powerfully humble spirit. And he talked about meeting uh, the, the Jamaat members and other folks from around the world. He had spent time in World War II. Wow. And so he had met people from the Caribbean. Um, which is where I hail from. I hail from Jamaica. And so he would always talk about the, well, at the time they were called the British West Indian soldiers, you know? Mm. So he said, you know, I, I remember meeting members of the British West India Regiment um, and they had a, a, a style and a spirit about them. So it was interesting because even though we were kind of bonding as Muslims, he was also giving me an interesting culture that he had observed yeah. about the spirit and qualities of these people that he had met many years before in the, Eastern theater. Um, and so it was just fascinating. I got a chance to, you know, he, he was a barber also for many years. So I always cherished the fact that I got a chance to literally sit at his feet and learn. And, and, and also at the same time, got, got haircuts from him. You know, it's a special experience, right? These are very special people, yeah. right? They're very special people. Um, there's a brother, Abibullah uh, Aziz, who recently, uh, recently passed away. Um, and the Aziz family is one of the, the large families in St. Louis. But, you know, Brother, 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 people was always so humble. And of, of all the things I admired about him, I loved his spirit of just doing for himself. Hmm. You know, he would, he would, he would bring out the kadam to 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 do something around the mosque, and he would show up right beside them and break out the lawnmower. And and I mean, he was a retiree when I met him. He had been retired for like thirty years. He would always joke with me and say, you know. <laughs> You you envy me, don't you? Because I'm I'm retired as well. <laughs> but he would he would come out with the lawnmower and he would be a part of the work crew, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, he wasn't he was that spirit was always in him. Um, he was always you know in the mission field of Tbilisi. He would enjoy inviting people into his home um, to just teach them the message of Islam. Anybody, even you know some of the you know the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons that walk the neighborhood, mm. he would invite them in, and he loved to spend time talking to them about faith religion and you know so i'm i'm always honored to have met brother habibullah and spend time with him and now spend time with his family because i'm just that that spirit right and mm -hmm. when i look at his grandchildren and see that spirit i'm like that's where it comes from it comes from really deep that islamic culture that he had been developing for himself and that made its way down into his family you know so um so many people the, yeah. some of the sisters um that that also i got a chance to meet here in st louis um, and, and again, this is just St. Louis. I've met other brothers. I got of copies of of the real revolution um, from my dear brother, uh, Zafar Sorelli, who is from the Caribbean as well um, uh, and had been, and he and used to been be here in the United States. He used to be in Mi years. Miami, is that correct? Yeah, New York, then Miami. Um, and then I think he's back, back around the Caribbean nowadays. Uh, I see. Um, but, you know, real strong spirit. Uh, I met him years ago in Jamaica when I joined Jamaat Ahmadiyya. And, you know, he came and he spent time with us and got a chance to meet us and, well, and never left us behind. You know, yeah, that was one of the, yeah. that's one of the key things of the spirit of the, the pioneers that I've noticed that, you know, challenges are going to come. Of you know, we, we all have to understand that. I'm a, I'm a convert to Ahmadiyyat and all kinds of life challenges come and all kinds of things test your faith. But one of the things that I noticed about that, that group of that, that 
early the early pioneers I had a chance to meet was their spirit was such that there was no judgment and no condemnation. Mm. They were always calling you back to Islam. Almost yes. every conversation with them was a return to your faith. Yes. Um, and, and that spirit remained strong with them. You know, why I even mentioned the real revolution is because they always taught us that these books are the books that keep you grounded. Yeah, yeah. The real revolution is uh, Inkilab Hakiki, yeah. a book written by uh, Hazrat Khalifa Masih uh, II. Um, and, and, and so these brothers were very instrumental in kind so, of keeping me engaged yeah. so dr Basil, that that bridge that link how how do you at, at palma or generally speaking in, in in the united states in the community how the, how do you engage with you know the young people within the community to foster their understanding of faith and increase participation based on what these pioneers these early members of the community what they have experienced because this it's it's an ocean of knowledge it's an ocean of experience that we we must not forget, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And it remains our challenge, right? I'm, I'm not going to tell you that as human beings and as, sure. you know, even Jamaat members and office bearers that we somehow have all the answers. What mm. we do have, um, what we do have is that connection to Khilafah. And so the, the, the more we try to encourage that, I think that's ultimately what draws our, our, our children in and draw them back and draw the young people back yeah. to encourage a kind of living connection with Khilafat, with Khalifa Musi. Because again, people all over the world, you know, Khalifa Musi, the, the second talked about this, he said, you can do all kinds of good things, but good things devoid of faith are moral, but not spiritual. And what Indeed. we're trying to create is a sense of spirituality because that's what runs deep. That's what carries into future generations. So what we try to do with, with our, our young people in our various programs is to try to help them to develop a sense of connectedness with Kalafa. Yeah. So as you know, we have the National Youth Camp. Um, I've gone there many years, um, over the last couple of years, to just talk with youth uh, and talk with the youth about some of the challenges of the society and the things that come up in the society that's going to impact them uh, and help them to understand that Islam has a response to some of these social challenges. Mm. And the key to activating the Islamic response is maintaining a connection with Khilafat, um, a connection with the Holy Quran. Know that the answer is there even if you don't know what the answer is. Mm. And that's okay. You can go and seek the answer, but just know that you are a part of a long spiritual tradition. The answer is there for you. So whatever is bothering your mind and troubling you right now, get it. It's life. Mm. But the answer is in the kitab. You know? <laughs> the answer is in the book. Yeah. Uh, the answer is in the teachings of Khilafat. The answer is in what we have. Give yourself some time and some patience to get to those answers. So we try to have things where we talk to our young people about that and open opportunities for them. Yeah. Try to integrate them in the different activities we have in Jamaat. Um, and, and help the young people to understand, especially the ones that are transgenerational Ahmadis, yeah. to understand that they're part of a rich tradition. Yeah. And that's not a, it's a unique, very distinctive tradition. It's not like anything of. else in the society, yeah. right? So yes, be proud of that sense that who you are as an Ahmadi, that your parents, grandparents came to this. Because many Palma people reflect that, right? Yeah, the yeah. African-Americans who we're talking about. But we also do have Africans who have longstanding connections to, the, to Ahmadiyyat on the continent. Yeah. Uh, and they know what that is. Some of them grew up in that. So now coming to the West, we try to help them to maintain a sense of deep connectedness yeah. to what they know already and what they have experienced, right? And of course, the converts who are seeking answers, that's why we came, yeah. Yeah. to help them to understand that the answers are there. So we, we have different programs that we try to do that. Like I mentioned, the, the Jamaat Youth Camp does yeah. that. 
um, and we create events inside of that to kind of do that and other programs that we try Beautiful. to keep the dialogue going. President for the Pan-African Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, Dr. Basir Rodney, um, thank you very much. Jazakallah for your time. Uh, it was absolutely uh, you know, wonderful. It's been an honor. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. And uh, hopefully we, we can come back to you and speak a little bit more about what's happening. Jazakallah once again. Assalamu alaikum. That brings us, unfortunately, in my eyes, to the end of today's program. I would like to conclude with some of the things that um, our elders and our guests mentioned today. I think two things in specific, to have that faith, to have that bond with God Almighty. In times like this, or in any times, it was the belief in God Almighty, the connection with God Almighty, that got these individuals, that got these pioneers through those difficult and turbulent times. And that is something that we need today more than ever before, probably. From all of us here at the Draft Time Show, Jazakallah for listening in. We'll be back on Monday, inshallah. Don't forget, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., it's SML. Assalamu alaikum.